I invite you to stand as you are able and join me in this morning's gospel lesson. From John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. We testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of God. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of God be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. For God so loved the world that God gave God's one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Friends, this is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. And so now, gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts together in this place and in all places be found pleasing to you. O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I have a question for us this morning. What difference do you think it would make in your life if you knew, like deep within you knew, that you were loved? What difference do you think it might make like if you knew from your head to your toes, deep down within your bones, that you were loved extravagantly? wholeheartedly, unconditionally, abundantly. 
There was actually a group of researchers at Duke University Medical School who in 1980 wanted to do a long-term research study on the effect of being loved and how it impacts us later in life. And so they found 500 families who were willing to be researched over the next 30 years for this never-before-done survey. Now, when the babies in each of these families were eight months old, psychologists gave them several developmental tests. But they actually weren't paying attention to the babies during these tests. They were watching the parents and how they were interacting with their children because they wanted to rate the parents' affection and attention toward their children on a five-point scale, ranging from negative attention to extravagant love and affection. 10% of these parents out of the 500 showed low levels of affection for their children. 85%, the vast majority, showed normal levels of affection, what was considered appropriate by the researchers. And about 6% of them showed what they considered to be high or extravagant love and affection for their children. 30 years later, those infants were now in their 30s, young adults, and this time they were the ones being interviewed. The research with these 30-somethings concluded that those who were in that top 6% category, those whose parents had shown them excessive, extravagant love, they were significantly less likely than others to feel stressed or anxious in life. They were less likely to report hostility or distressing social interactions in their day-to-day worlds. 30 years later, and those extravagantly, excessively loved babies had grown up to be happier, more resilient, and less anxious as adults. In 2013, a similar study from UCLA found that receiving affection as an infant actually changes something about us, that it changes our brain activity. (laughs) And many of us in this room, I would venture to guess, know that the opposite of that is also true, that experiencing abuse, a lack of attention, negative attention, that changes something about us too. This study went on to propose that parents' affection for their children can actually protect them later on in life from the negative effects of the stress that they might experience down the road. Now, in my non-scientific and non-medical understanding of these studies, I might summarize the research in this way. That being extravagantly loved makes a radical difference in our lives. It changes everything for us, and it doesn't just affect us here in our minds, and it doesn't just affect us here in our hearts. It changes our entire being 
when we know deep within our core that we are extravagantly loved. That is the lens with which I invite us to read our gospel lesson this morning in John 3. It's a popular verse that if you grew up in church or spent much time around church, you were probably taught to memorize John 3.16. In fact, I would imagine that we can say it together this morning. That for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Man, look at us. (laughs) We know different translations. Some of us are quoting the King James Version. We've got our whosoever believeth in him. We had that verse, I mean, deeply ingrained within us. Except I don't know about you, but in my more recent years, I have often heard this verse of scripture used in an attempt to draw lines around who is in and who is out of God's love. It's been used in ways that are sometimes exclusive rather than expansive and sometimes harmful rather than healing, which is why we've got to keep reading what comes next Because we learned verse 16, but how many of you can say verse 17 by heart? Margie Brown, yes! (laughs) GAs. Because we read verse 17, which says that God did not send God's Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What a radical difference it would make if people knew that deep within their bones, that God did not send God's Son into the world to condemn the world. And yet, how many people of faith are known by the spirit of condemnation instead of the spirit of expansive and extravagant love? It seems like somewhere along the way, this message has been lost Far too many people seeking to represent God seem to have it the other way around. But I love what Bible scholar David Luce points out about this text. He says, lest we forget that God sends the Son out of love, which is, of course, where verse 16 begins. In verse 17, we hear the clear explanation, affirmation, and indeed repetition that the Son was not sent to condemn but to save. So it's not about who is in and who's out, but rather about God's consistent intent to love, save, and bless the whole world. And yet, how often do we hear this message of condemnation instead? We've heard that message loud and clear this week in our home state As a slew of bills are attempting to be passed in Frankfurt that seek to threaten some of the most vulnerable among us, our LGBTQ youth. On Thursday, the House overwhelmingly passed a measure that would prevent our trans youth from receiving life-saving, gender-affirming care that they need. Another bill in the Senate threatens to prevent teachers from creating safe and inclusive classrooms preventing many of our LGBTQ students from receiving the only kind of affirming care that they even have access to in their lives right now. 
According to the Human Rights Commission, there are currently more than 340 anti-LGBTQ bills in states across the country right now, 90 of which are targeted toward our trans youth. And these bills are directly in opposition to the most up-to-date scholarly research about what is actually saving the lives of our LGBTQ community. Not to mention the fact that I believe they are in direct opposition to this gospel that we seek to preach and to live. The Trevor Project is a national organization that's working to build safer and more inclusive world for our LGBTQ young people. And if you haven't heard of the Trevor Project before, Google them, look them up, follow them on social media. They are doing tremendous and life-saving work. And for the past several years, they have conducted nationwide research on the mental health of LGBTQ youth. Just last year, their survey captured the experiences of nearly 34,000 LGBT youth ages 13 to 24 across the country, with 45% of their respondents being youth of color, 48% being transgender or non-binary, making this survey one of the most diverse surveys of its kind ever conducted. And one of their biggest findings was that 45% of LGBTQ youth seriously considered suicide in the past year. Almost 50% which they estimate represents more than 1.8 million young people across the country. Their senior research scientist, Dr. Maisha Price, points out that although the data continues to show high rates of mental health crisis and suicide risk among LGBTQ youth, it's crucial to note that these rates vary widely based on one thing and one thing alone. And that is the way that they are treated. Because those who felt high social support, either from their families, from their schools, and or communities, including faith communities, they experienced mental health crisis at half the rate of those who felt low or even moderate support in their lives. She says these findings emphasize the clear need to break down barriers to care and promote acceptance at the local level to save young LGBTQ lives. Because it can make a life-saving difference in any of our lives for us to know deep down that we are loved, especially these youth. And what a difference for them to know that Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. A man named Henry Nowen began wrestling with this question of his own belovedness in the 1980s. And in the summer of 1985, Nowen actually left his role as a professor at Harvard Divinity School, feeling like something was missing from his life. And so he joined the Lark community, which is a community of support and empowerment for people with intellectual disabilities. He spent the next nine months sharing life with people at Lark. 
after which he decided to end his career in academia, to hang up the robe, to close the door to his office at Harvard, and to join the Lark community full-time, where he served as a pastor among them for the next 10 years. Nowen wrote beautifully about his experiences with people at Lark and how profoundly they changed him. He says, the first thing that struck me when I came to live in a home with people with intellectual disabilities was that their liking or disliking me had absolutely nothing to do with all of the useful things I had learned to do throughout my life. Nobody could read my books, so they could not impress anyone. And since most of them had never had an opportunity to go to school, my 20 years at Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard did not provide a significant introduction. My considerable ecumenical experience proved even less valuable. For instance, once when I offered meat to one of the assistants during dinner, one of the disabled men said to me, don't give him meat, he doesn't eat meat, he's a Presbyterian. Not able to use any of the skills that I had always found so practical in the past was a source of anxiety for me. He says, I was suddenly faced with my naked self, open to affirmation and rejection, hugs and punches, smiles and tears. In a way, it seemed like I was starting my life all over again. My prior relationships, connections, reputations, none of that could be counted on. This experience was, and in many ways, is still the most important experience of my life because it forced me to rediscover my true identity as a beloved child of God. He says, are you like me hoping that some person, thing, or event will come along and give you that final feeling of inner well-being that you desire? Don't you often hope maybe, just maybe, this book or this idea, this course, this trip, this job, this relationship will ultimately fulfill my deepest desire? But as long as you are waiting for that mysterious moment, you will go on running helter-skelter, always anxious and restless, never fully satisfied. He says, you know that this is the compulsiveness that keeps us going and always busy, but at the same time makes us wonder whether we are getting anywhere at all. This is the way to spiritual exhaustion. This is the way to spiritual death. But now it says we don't have to do that. We don't have to run ourselves into the ground trying to hustle and bustle and prove or earn or make our own belovedness. It's already there. He says we are beloved. We are intimately loved long before our parents, teachers, spouses, children, or friends loved or wounded us. That is the truth of our lives. That is the truth I want you to claim for yourself. But we know that we can't just believe it here, and we can't just believe it here. 
In fact, Nowen says, as long as this is a little more than a beautiful thought or a lofty idea that hangs above our heads to keep us from going forward, nothing really changes. Claiming our identity as God's beloved means pulling the truth revealed to me from above down into the ordinariness of what I am, in fact, thinking about, talking about, and doing from hour to hour. Friends, if we lived each day not only knowing in our head, not only feeling it in our heart, but truly embracing this idea that we, we are God's beloved and that our neighbor is God's beloved, that even our enemy is God's beloved, how would that change things? What difference would that make to those critical voices in our head, the ones that we often can't seem to turn off because they narrate our lives with this constant chatter, voices of critique and negativity? What difference would it make when the loneliness just seems overwhelming, when the problems we are facing feel so insurmountable or the fear within us is all-consuming? What difference would it make in the ways that we care for our bodies, our minds, our spirits, our souls? What difference would it make in the ways that we spend our time? What difference would it make in the ways that we show up and work for justice in God's world? Because the answer to that question is actually what embodiment is. And no one can answer it for you. The answer can only be lived out and not up here and not even right here, but all around us. Friends, Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world. Christ came because God so loved the world. That God so loved you, Sophie. God so loved you, Dr. Sanders. Christ came because God so loved you, Megan. God so loved you, Ainsley. Christ came because God so loved you, Hazel. And God so loved you, Scott. Christ came because God so loved you, Quinn. God so loved you, Taft. That through the audacious, extravagant, expansive, overwhelming love of Christ, the whole world might be saved through him. May it be so, friends. May this love live and move and have its being among us. Amen.